If you could find your seats, we're going to get started. You can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We are continuing our series, and it's great to have you with us this morning. It's good to be together, to be in the Lord's presence, and to hear Him speak to us. What an amazing thought to think that the eternal, infinite God has given us a book that contains His very words. He is a God who communicates. He speaks to us. He's kind, he's gracious, and he wants us to know him and know his truth and his ways. So it's a blessing to come together and sing about his word, to celebrate it in sacrament, and to hear his word preached and taught. Uh, If you're a guest with us for the first time, my name is Paul Buckley, and I'm the lead pastor here at King of Grace Church. Uh, Very soon, not to be the only pastor. Um, uh, And... By the way, uh, I think I have just about everybody's affirmation who's a member. Um, If you haven't got me your email for that, I will be chasing you down this week probably. Um, But I just, we do need to hear from every single member. Uh, And we would love to hear also from regular attendees as well. And thank you for the number of you who have sent replies. Um, and, uh, And as I think many of you would guess, uh, they're all very, very positive. Um. We've seen the grace of God at work in our brother's life, Uh, and so we're grateful for that. It is the Lord who raises leaders up. It's the Lord who who, uh, cares for his church. Leaders are a gift from God, the Scripture teaches us, and our job is to come alongside the Lord as he's pouring out his grace to uh, train, to recognize, to train, and when it's time, to ordain elders and to appoint deacons as well. So uh, I'm looking forward to April 15th. Is that the date? Uh, when we have our time to ordain Jeff. And, and uh, given that we have pretty much all the responses, I think that's pretty much what's going to happen. But I do want to hear from every single person as well. So thank you. Um, God has been good to us. Uh, and he's good to us through his word. Uh, just praying this morning, thinking about how he shapes us and guides us uh, through his word, that he creates his church really through his word. Uh, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's Word. God's Word is spoken. It's powerful. He changes lives. He creates new life. He, he uh, redeems us. He grants, and through the speaking of the, the Word of the Gospel, uh, that is the point where there is faith and regeneration and new life. And, and then He cares for us through His Word. And then He uses us as ambassadors of His Word to, to, uh, to, to preach it and to bring it to others and to live out the implications of it before them. So thank God for his wonderful word. And we're going to dig into Philippians chapter 2 here as we continue our series. Before we do that, just give you a quick background and then we will pray. Uh, We have been following along. We're going to be in verses 12 and 13 today. And we just spent time last week and the week before looking at a major chunk at the beginning of chapter 2 where Paul's addressing uh, the the issue of living selfishly or the call to live unselfishly, humbly, unselfishly, he's presented to us in that the, the power of the blessings of the gospel to lead us in being of one mind and, and uh, living for the good of others. And then he's given us this example of the gospel in Jesus Christ and his life and how he humbled himself to serve others and ultimately uh, to the point of death on the cross, all that that meant. And then the wonderful result of that was God's uh, just exaltation of the Son. And now the Son is Lord, and He will be called Lord by all. 
Uh, and in that context, Paul moves into chapter uh, 2, verse 12 and 13 in light of this call, in light of Christ, in light of the glorious gospel. He moves into these two verses, which we'll touch on today. But let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the life that your word brings. We thank you, Lord, uh, for those of us who know you. Lord, you have caused us to be uh, born again. You have caused us to, to receive new life. You have brought us into this place of salvation, of forgiveness and reconciliation with you, of being called sons and daughters through the power of your word. And we thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. And we thank you that you continue to, to change us and transform us and guide us and equip us through your word, and that we get to be before your word today. And so we ask you, O oh God, would you speak to us? Would you do this miracle of using an earthen vessel, a very plain, simple, uh, weak thing to display infinite glory? Lord, would you use me, and would you speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear from you? May we see your glory through your word. Build us up, magnify your name, and send us out from here in your grace and in the mission you call us to, to impact this world in your name. We thank you, Lord, that you do all these things through the power of your word, through the very power of the Holy Spirit. We ask you to work, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says to his beloved friends in Philippi, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. This week, uh, on Tuesday, Peg and I are heading to Florida um, for 10 days, a kind of a mini sabbatical retreat and a little bit of vacation, about half and half. Uh, and um, we're going to be there keeping our, our moms, our widowed moms company as well. And I'm very sorry if you're feeling jealous right now. I didn't mean to make you jealous. And please don't wish me a very serious sunburn. Um, but uh, the reason I bring it up is actually because uh, in Florida, uh, there's a picture that I think will serve us in this text. If you've ever been in Florida, you've perhaps noticed that on many of the roads, as you drive along, the roads are barely above the water table. They're barely above the water table. So has anyone here been in Florida, and particularly on the, the back roads, and you drive down and there's a canal on one side, and sometimes those canals are actually, the water table is just like a foot or so below the road, maybe a couple feet below the road. There's a canal on one side, in a canal on the other side, and you know what's in those canals, right? You know what lives in those canals. There's all sorts of nasty tropical animals that will hurt you in those canals, things like alligators, right? There's alligators, there's got to be snakes, uh, there's probably like lots of, lots of uh, piranha from people's fish tanks and stuff. They dump, they get rid of their piranha and all those sort of things. They live in those canals, and if you ever think about it, you drive down that road in Florida, it's really perilous because you could just drive a little bit this way or that way and in some of the roads there's no guardrail or anything the canal's right there and you could end up in that thing and who knows what would happen they probably would just find the car because the piranhas would get you um, 
Well, that picture, in some ways, is a picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is a life that's meant to be on a highway. We'll call it the gospel highway. And on both sides of that highway are canals or swamps, if you will, that are dangerous swamps. Our passage today addresses this truth. Our passage today addresses the truth that on on each side is a swamp. On one side is the swamp we'll call the the mire of performance. Okay, one side is the swamp we'll call the mire of performance. It is dangerous. It's full of destruction. And it's really the, it's it's a place where where, it gives you the idea, it's the idea that that the successful Christian life is one where you need to follow all the rules. If you follow all the rules, you'll have a successful life. And if you mess up on any of the rules, you're, you'll have an unsuccessful, you have a very dangerous Christian life. Uh, and and uh, the more rules you follow, the better it will be. And even if you are really good at following the rules and do it really right, then, then you will be somehow acceptable to God. Maybe even you'll get to go to heaven. That's the mire of performance on one side. It says that, that if you do, you receive. If you don't, you don't receive. And, and it does ha- influence our view of ourselves as far as going to heaven, but I think it works itself out more on a day-to-day basis for really everybody at, at some point. Every one of us has ended up in that mire of performance. And it influences us more in terms of how we feel about ourselves and about our relationship with God. That's really where the, where the experience commonly is. I feel good if I'm doing good. If I'm doing well, I, I feel good. If I'm doing poorly, I feel terrible. And so my relationship with the Lord is, a, is a, this terrible roller coaster based on my performance. That swamp is a dangerous place. You either get swallowed alive by guilt or devoured by self-righteousness in the mire of performance. On the other side of the road is this swamp called the marsh of passivity. The marsh of passivity. It's equally dangerous. And it says that you don't need to do anything because God has already done it all. Now, these are partial truths, by the way. You don't need to do anything because God has already done it all. Just just understand grace and stop trying so hard and just relax. The Christian life is really about just simply and only letting go and letting God and getting used to all that God has done for you in Christ. Don't lift a finger, because if you do, that's going to be legalism and performance, and that's not proper worship of God. This swamp is dangerous as well. Here you can be eaten alive by licentiousness or catch the disease of lazy Christianity. We want to avoid these swamps on either side. We want to walk along and drive along the highway of gospel truth. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 really provide for us guardrails along that highway. They provide guardrails to keep us from going in the marsh of passivity or the mire of performance. They're guardrails for us that we might live in gospel truth and cruise along that highway. So this is basically what I want to do today is dig into verses 12 and 13 and learn about these guardrails. And, and with the hope that as a result of understanding these things, we will all be successful as we live in the gospel along this gospel highway. To put it perhaps in not a metaphor but a statement, 
Philippians 2, 12, and 13 teach us that we must take responsibility to actively and eagerly work out the fullness of our salvation. We must take responsibility to actively and eagerly work out the fullness of our salvation, ultimately and only because God himself is working in us. Ultimately, and only because God himself is working in us according to his sovereign grace. That's a mouthful to maybe put it in a shorter phrase. You must work because God works in you. You must work because God works in you. And so those are the two things I want to talk about. First, you must work, and then God works in you. So let's do that, and let's follow through in our scripture today. And, and I encourage you to have this out on your lap so you can follow along. We will project at times. Paul starts out saying, therefore, my beloved. Therefore, my beloved. And we've seen in Philippians his relationship with the church in Philippi. He loves these people. They are his dear, dear friends. And he is very dear to them. And so he calls them his beloved. He says, therefore, though. Therefore. And when in Scripture you see a therefore, you need to look for what it's there for. Right? Have you ever heard that? So what is this therefore? Because he's transitioning out of Actually, this previous section about Christ, his death and his resurrection, and really the therefore pointing even back to this call to live a life worthy of the gospel. So the therefore is connecting. Paul is connecting with with what went previously, and now he's going to call them in light of these truths, in light of what he said, to something further here. He's, He's transitioning into the next section. And then he says... After that, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's saying uh, to the Philippians, as you've always obeyed, these are people he knows, and they have demonstrated a life of obedience to the truth of the gospel, and there has been good fruit. So there's been obedience, there's been a response that's been there, and it's been not only in his presence, because he was there and he knows them, but, but he asked them and reminds them to see it happen much more in his absence. So as they've always obeyed, in his presence, much more in absence. Now he says, in the next phrase, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So the core of what Paul's saying right here, if we, he, he's, he's talking about it's paralleling obeying. It's uh, not only in, when he's there, but, in, but uh, when he's absent. He, but the core of it is this, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. That's the core of what Paul is saying in verse 12. Work out your own salvation. What in the world does Paul mean by that statement? What does he mean? What is going on here in verse 12? Is Paul having some sort of temporary lapse of theological discernment here? Because Paul, as we know him, says elsewhere very different things. And it seems like here he's saying, work out your own salvation. He's, he's saying somehow we have to achieve our own salvation or something like that. Work out your own salvation. Maybe, maybe we've misunderstood. Maybe there's some sort of way that, uh, that our salvation are, are being rescued uh, to God from sin. Maybe there's some way where we do part of it and God does the rest. Maybe, maybe, maybe God pays for the big sin in our life, but the little sins we've got to work on, and we can work hard enough to make up for our little sins. Work out your own salvation. 
Um, maybe, maybe God in, in Jesus' death pays for our sins, but then we have to, you know, he pays for our, our sins, the things we've done wrong, and then we have to do things right. So we have to do, you know, sins of commission and omission. He pays for sins of commission, now sins of omission. We've got to get it right. So we've got to add to that salvation and work out our own salvation. Is that what Paul means? I don't think so. Paul is not mentally unstable, and more importantly, God is not mentally unstable in that he would say something radically different than anything else he said. Because we can look in the rest of Scripture and we see very clear statements that our salvation that, that our salvation is not by works. It's a gift. So I think we have some verses to show on this. Uh, Philippians 3. He says later on in this letter, he says, uh, speaking of his own life, he says that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. He says it black and white, right there. Not having a righteousness of my own. So it's not my righteousness. It's not my works. It's not me earning. It's not that I can be worthy. I cannot present some of my own worthiness before God. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, so obeying the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Not Paul, faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Very clear. It's not about what I do. It's about what Christ has done, and my faith is in him. Later on, or elsewhere in Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. Very clear. This not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Very clear. Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. So are, are counted clean and forgiven and worthy. Justified means both. Your sins are no longer counted to you and you are counted worthy. It's really wild to think of this. You are justified. So it says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Another very clear statement. It's not by your works. So what's going on? Well, let me explain. First, I want to talk about what salvation is. I think we need to understand what salvation is. Often when we hear salvation, when we think about salvation, we, we, um, we, we don't get the entire picture of what salvation is. So what is salvation? Just technically, salvation means uh, an experience, a state of being rescued. It means to be rescued, uh, and, and it's become a theological world, word only, but it means to be rescued. So if you were down at the beach swimming, which you wouldn't want to do this time of year, but if you were swimming uh, in the summertime, and you started drowning, and the lifeguard pulls you to safety, you've experienced salvation. You've been rescued from drowning. You're up on the beach. You're, you're, you're saved from drowning. There's salvation. That's what that's what the word means. Or if you got lost in the woods and they had to send out a rescue team and they, and they came and they found you and they took you by helicopter back to the hospital and you're all, you're all better taken care of. You've experienced salvation. You've been rescued. That's what the word means. It means to be rescued. And biblically, when it talks about salvation, it means to be rescued from sin. Sin is this sad state and the action of rebellion and, and the set uh, of Sorry, it's a sad state and action of rebellion against God and the resultant separation from God. It's saying, no, God, I don't want you. I want my own way. 
And it's an attitude and it's an action. Sin is, is this thing that, that causes us to, to want to live outside of God's reign, outside of his holy law and his lordship. And to live in sin is to be spiritually dead and cut off from a right relationship with God. So to live in sin, to be in sin, is to be spiritually dead. You may be physically alive, and yes, indeed, everybody bears the image of God, and, and there, in a sense, is, is good there in people. But, but to be apart from God, to be in sin, is to be spiritually dead and cut off from a right relationship with God. And sin does this. It, it brings with it uh, horrible things. It brings with it a penalty for sin, of eternal separation from God. But it also brings a dark power into our lives that, that control our lives and, and make us do things that we know we shouldn't do. It's almost like there's this disease or parasite that lives inside of us and, and poisons us and, 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 and affects our lives. And we are in desperate need of rescue from sin desperate need of rescue from sin. And it's, and it's all aspects of sin that we need rescue from. We need rescue from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for living a life in sin is spiritual death. And if you are living your life in sin right now, if you've not come to the rescue that God offers in Christ, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You may be a great person in many ways, but you are ultimately dead and cut off from God. And should you choose to live life in that state, it'll continue, and it'll be forever, eventually. That's what hell is. It's being, being spiritually dead for eternity, cut off from God. So there's a penalty of sin, but sin also has a power over our lives. It's, it's like this disease that's in us and that makes us do things that we know we shouldn't. It has a real power. And we all experience this, some of us in more significant ways. There are people who, who know their captivity. They know that they're captive to, to sexual impurity or drugs or, or, or envy or bitterness. They're captive. Sin is powerful. It grabs a hold of you and does not let go. And we need to be rescued from that. We need to be rescued from its presence in our lives too. It's there. So there's a rescue that goes on. There's a rescue that we need that is, is a deep rescue. And that's rescue. The fullness of that rescue is what salvation is. The problem is that sometimes we, we confuse salvation with merely the rescue from sin's penalty. So when we read Paul saying, work out your own salvation, you realize there's nothing I can do. I can't pay the penalty. I mean, I, I could, but that means living forever in separation from God. I'm, I can't work out that I need someone to come and rescue me from its penalty. I can't break its power in my life. I am captive. My life demonstrates I'm captive to sin left to myself. I can't break its power and its presence. I can't do anything with its presence. I need a rescue. And, and, and we need a rescue from our sin in, in, in all those ways. We are desperate for uh, someone to come and rescue. That's what Christ has come to do. He comes and he pays the penalty on the cross. He bears our sins on himself. He offers up to God his righteous life that's accepted. And when we trust in him, the penalty is taken care of. For the believer, when you see the gospel and you believe in the gospel, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes in and you are a new creature. The Spirit of God is now in you. 
And there's the, the spirit of the everlasting, holy, eternal God lives in you. And the power of sin is broken over your life. You don't have to live in sin. There's freedom in the power of the Holy Spirit. But sin still remains for the believer. So the penalty has been taken care of by Christ. The power is broken in the new life in the Spirit. But the presence of sin still remains. And until you go to be with the Lord, there is a battle to fight with sin. You have everything on your side. Your pen the penalty's taken care of. You're forgiven. And, and nothing you do as a believer can, can reverse that, can change that. You are secure in Christ. Not because you're a good person, but because you've put your faith in Christ, not yourself. You've turned from your sins and placed your faith in Christ. And you're secure in that. The penalty is paid for. The power is broken. But there's a working out of the presence of sin in our lives. There's a working out of this new life in Christ. And so when Paul says working out your own salvation, that's what he's addressing. He's addressing the fullness of your salvation. You are to work out your own salvation in the fullness of it. And he talks about this right in Philippians as he goes on. Um, he talks about his own life and his own working out of his salvation Later on in chapter 3, he says this at the end of chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Speaking of his own life and of Christ, he says, that I may know him, Jesus that is, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like Jesus in his death, where Jesus was perfected, lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father and love of the Father and love of others. He, Paul wants to become like Jesus in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to finish the job. He wants to see the job finished. He wants to be like Jesus. That's his life goal. And he says, it goes on, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I press on. I do something. I work. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I belong to him. This is who I am. The penalty's been taken care of. The power's there. My, my future is set, and so I strive for that wonderful future. I want it. I want to deal with sin. I want to put away the way of sin. I want to live this new life. In Jesus, the battle is not yet over for Paul. And folks, the battle's not yet over for us. The Christian life is not a life of merely letting go and letting God. Yes, that's a partial truth, but there's more to it. It's an incomplete statement. It's not a, mere, a matter of merely getting used to your justification, as some put it. And that's a true thing. We need to get used to that. We're justified. And that has tremendous power, but it's an incomplete statement. Paul would not say that. There's more to it here. Working out the implications of your salvation already brought to you by Christ is, is what we're called to. We're to work out the implications of our salvation and what we have in Christ. We're to walk in it. We're to see it worked out. Yes, sin's penalty has been taken care of. Thank God, wonderful, glorious. The power has been broken, but the, the presence of sin is to be worked out. We are to be conformed more and more individually and corporately, by the way, to Christ. Paul's speaking to a whole church. He's using plurals as he speaks to them. And it's implied, yes, individually we need to do that, but corporately, 
Remember, what's he talking about in chapter 2 earlier and, and, and before that? Living unselfishly with one another. So Paul has in mind, guys, work out your salvation. Work out your own salvation corporately by, by what? By learning to live in the power of the gospel and the pattern of the gospel and to live unselfishly. That's how you do it. Together, working it out, living unselfishly, loving others, putting others first, making their parade more important than your own, as we talked about. We're called to this. This is what Paul calls us to. It, it, it reminds me of a, of a dog I knew when I was a kid. I think it was my aunt's dog. And I can't remember whose dog it was. I think it was my aunt's dog. And at times, uh, my aunt had to go away and leave the dog in a kennel. Now, normally this dog, I, th I think it was her German Shepherd, uh, and beautiful dog. Normally, the dog had the run of the house, could run around the house anywhere it wanted, and in the yard, too. Plenty of room to run and to, you know, chase squirrels and all that sort of stuff. But they would put it in the kennel for a little while, and it was a, about a four-by-eight-foot space in that kennel. And the dog, when it was in the kennel, would get used to the dimensions of the kennel. And, it would, and because it's a dog and had energy and needed to do things, it would, it would pace in the kennel, four-by-eight space, the whole time in the kennel, I guess. And the funny thing was that when they brought the dog home and put it in the yard or put it in the house, instead of running around the house or running around the yard when it had free space to do that, the dog continued to pace in a four-by-eight-foot space for a while until it figured it out that it was no longer in its kennel, that it was in a different place. That's a picture of the Christian life. We live in our sin in a four-by-eight-foot kennel. And we get used to living life this way under sin, under its guilt, under its power over us, or under its condemnation, under the identity that we might have in sin. And then Christ comes, and he pays the penalty for our sins, and he breaks its power, and the cage is gone in our lives. But we still walk in a four-by-eight-foot kennel pattern at times because we have not learned to live the new life. In Christ, in the power of Christ, in the forgiveness, in the new identity in Christ, in the, the, the new perspective on the law of God that we get, that, that no longer does it condemn. We're forgiven. There's no condemnation. The law moves from something that crushes and kills us to a wonderful invitation to the glorious new life we can have in Christ. So we learn to walk outside the kennel. That's what Paul is talking about here. Working out your own salvation. Learning to, to live this new life. To live in the power and pattern of the gospel. To, to, to see it applied to our lives in this way. This idea. This idea of working out your own salvation. Of being responsible to live in the power of the gospel. Live in what you already have and respond to it. To put to death sin and live in love. To live in faith, to live in obedience, to, to, to do this. This aspect of working out your own salvation is the guardrail that protects us from the marsh of passivity. It protects us from going into that marsh. The next guardrail is in verse 13. Lest we think that lest we think that the Christian life is entirely of our own making, lest we go into the, the mire of performance, we have verse 13. 
Verse 13 says, for, so he says, as he starts in his next section, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, folks, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As you live before the, the glorious gospel, this glorious God, there's fear and trembling. Not this servile fear and trembling, but this, this holy reverence, this holy awareness that, that I'm called to this, live this life and before God and in his grace. So you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for... So that's meaning it's groundwork, right? It's a reason. It's, it's, it's a background for what he just said. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. They, these are two statements that almost seem opposed to each other. But they must both be understood. Both guardrails need to be in place in our lives. And it's interesting here that Paul, often when he writes his letters, he will say, verse 13 type things first, and then verse 12 type things. Do you know what I mean? In the book of Ephesians, he spends the first few chapters talking about the four. For God has done this. God has rescued you. God has, has predetermined to rescue you and, and to work out this salvation. He has done all these things. You have forgiveness. You are beloved. All these things. The four is there. And then he goes into, so now, do this. He does it differently here, and I, and I think that's purposeful. And I think it's instructive to us. It's really important for us, I think for a church, that we're, we're going to emphasize grace. We're going we're to live in that grace. Without grace, we have nothing. And biblically, that's true. We're going to stand and build on grace. But we can make the mistake of, of living and ending up in the swamp of passivity, ending up in that place where we just think, you know, well, well we don't even want to talk about what we should do because, because we could go over... We could go over to legalism, and there's a danger there. But notice how freely Paul interchanges those things. So, so in Ephesians, he says the four first, and then he calls us to action. But here, he's saying action, work it out, and then the four. So let us not be afraid to, to talk about vigorous, vigorous, grace-motivated, faith-filled obedience and law-keeping. Let us not be afraid of that. If we get the gospel of grace, we will be protected from legalism in that. So let us not be afraid, but let us ground ourselves in grace. Let us ground ourselves in what the grounding is here in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to work or to act for his good pleasure. Wonderful. What a wonderful statement here. God works in you. God works in you, Philippians. God works in you, King of Grace folks. God works in you, the infinite, holy God. He's at work in you. He's active in you. If you are a Christian, if you put your faith in him, and that, that could be today if you have not put your faith in him, this can be for you. He works in you, the God who made the universe, the God who's Lord over supernovas and galaxies and, and all these things, the God who controls a uh, infinite amount almost of, of electrons around atoms. This God works in you. He's in you. He's working in you to do what? To will and to work according to his good pleasure. To will and to, to work. Really, that, that, is, that is what life is about, what, what, what we do. We will and then we do things, right? That's, that's how we conduct ourselves. It's our conduct, what we do how we con conduct our lives, even our attitudes, our attitudes and actions are about willing. We want something, we desire something, and then we do something. And this verse says God 
works in you to do what? To will? So do you want something? You want, you desire something, you determine something's good and you want it to, so that, to will and to work. So both your attitudes and actions, God is in you to do that for his good pleasure. And his good pleasure is, is, is this phrase is used elsewhere. It's really speaking of uh, according to his sovereign grace, according to his, his good plan for you, according to his gracious choice to, to bless your life and to bring salvation to your life and to work it out. He is the one who's active in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. He is at work in you. Therefore, you can work. Therefore, you can live in the results of that. He is active in you to, to will and to work. It's, it's just amazing. And that's where our hope needs to be grounded. We are indeed called to vigorous action. We are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you can do a survey in the Bible of the sort of words that Paul and the other apostles use when they talk about the Christian life, words like strive, words like make every effort, those are words of hard work. And when we get the ground right, when we understand, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure, we're unafraid to do the hard work, to strive, to make every effort, because we know it's all in grace, it's all from him, yet we do it. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what he's building. That's what he's calling us to. And it's glorious that God is at work in us. Pretty much every morning, I, I have a cup of coffee. I like coffee. I like it strong. I like Starbucks coffee, I think, the best. And, and when I drink my coffee, it works in me. The problem is, over time, it starts to diminish. You know how that is, right? And then you just need your cup to be normal. So I, I'm trying to be careful not to have too much coffee in the morning. But I have coffee, and I drink it, and it causes me to will and to act certain ways. And usually, it's, it's helpful. Sometimes, if I have too much coffee, I will a lot of things, and, and I don't quite know what they are, and I get nervous, and I try to do things, and I run around like a chicken with my head cut off if I have too much coffee. Um, so I have to be careful. But coffee works that way in my life. And I imagine in your life, God is like that, but oh, so much better. I don't have to drink every morning. I don't get withdrawal headaches. He's there. He's in me. He's active. He's always accessible. And he does more than just cause me to be hyper and get things done. He changes me. He reorients me. He gives me fresh and new desires to want to do his will and to have the power to act, to, to follow through. He's at work by his grace in my life. He's at work in your life to will and to act according to his good pleasure. It's amazing, and I'm very glad of it, because I know that if he were not at work in my life to will and to work for his good pleasure, I would not be willing and working according to his good pleasure. I know myself well enough, and I think if you're honest with yourself, you have to admit, left to yourself, you'd be in trouble. Left to myself, I'd be in trouble. I would make a mess of things. I would not want what he wants. I would want what I want, and that would be a mess. I've, I've seen it. I've done it. Uh, it it's, you know, and I still, as, as a Christian, still experience that. There's times when I go back. I still pace in my 4 by 8 cage, and, and I know I make a mess of things. So I am so glad that God is at work in me to will and to work 
according to his good pleasure. I'm so glad that he's at work in you as well. And it's for his good pleasure. That needs to be the ground that we stand on. Ultimately, because he's gracious. Ultimately, because he loves us. Ultimately, because he decided to act in people that did not deserve it and would not have chosen to believe and to act according to his good pleasure. Ultimately, because of those things, we will enact and therefore work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It's according to his good pleasure, his wonderful grace that is sure. God does not change his mind. He sets his affection on somebody and he never removes it for his beloved chosen people. And so his his good pleasure is the, the ultimate ground we stand on. His good pleasure is at work, and nothing will shake that. Nothing will, will change us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, including you, will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. He is gracious. He works because he works and therefore we work. As the band comes up and as we close, um, it makes me think about uh, a, a story and experience for us. Uh, when the kids were young, about 6 to 12 years old, um, I would take them out and let them drive the car. Before you get worried, uh, I didn't like sit in the passenger seat and just let them go anywhere. What I would do when they were little is I would have them come up on my lap. I would be in the driver's seat. And I would operate the pedals. Uh, and, and also, sorry to break it to you guys in case you didn't know this, I would hold the steering wheel at the very bottom uh, and, and kind of guide it. And I would let them sit on my lap, and they would grab that steering wheel, and they would, and they would really steer the car. I would let them. I would, you know, I just let it go through my, slide through my hand, and would drive in a safe place, by the way. We weren't, like, on the highway or anything. Um, and, and, and they loved it. I mean, they loved it. It was just, like, amazing. I'm driving the car, and, they, and inevitably, they'd, you know, go home and, and, and uh, go up to Peg and be like, Mommy, I, I drove the car. Dad, let me drive the car. And, and, you know, that was their viewpoint. But the reality was is I was there. Controlling the steering wheel. I was there doing the pedals. And I let them steer the wheel. They were doing it. That's a picture of what the Lord does in our lives. He's, his grace is at work in us. It's an incomplete picture, perhaps, but a picture of how God works. He's at work in us according to his good pleasure. Therefore, we're called to work out our own salvation. We're called to activity. But it is grounded in and driven by his previously previous activity. So that is our other guardrail. The guardrail that keeps us from the mire of performance is this verse, verse 13, that for it is God who works in us to will and act. It's by grace. It's not your performance. You can't earn. God, is, by his good pleasure, has chosen to rescue you and to work through your life. You get to work, but it's not about merit. It's about your new life in Christ. It's a totally different perspective than what the mire of performance says. So these guardrails are up, and as we close, let me, uh, let me ask you, which swamp has been your preference? Which swamp has been one that you end up in? Philippians 12 and 13, 2, 12, and 13 are the tow truck 
to pull you out of the swamp this morning, Lord willing. Which swamp have you been in? If you could just think about that and just ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to cement the truths of 12 and 13 and lead you in a life along that gospel highway with those guardrails securely in place. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Philippians 2, 12 and 13 and and how they are like guardrails that protect us. We ask you, Lord, to help us. Help us no longer live in either swamp, but in the truth, in your truth, producing good fruit by your grace, working hard that all of your grace, we pray in Christ's name.